0: Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this.
1: Today's episode is presented by Equinor. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Equinor's answer is one kilometre below the seabed. We're planning to capture CO2 emissions and safely store them under the sea. Visit equinor.co.uk.
0: I don't care about two years ago, said the greatest American footballer of all time. Tom Brady, as he was asked to reflect on past glories. All I care about is last week. So it's probably a good thing that Westminster Insider does not count many aging NFL stars amongst its listeners, given that today's episode is going to be focused entirely, completely, and utterly upon events of two years ago. Two years ago, December 2019. An innocent time when all anyone cared about was Brexit and the pandemic was just a twinkle in a Wuhan lab worker's eye. When Dominic Cummings was a fresh-faced whippersnapper in Downing Street without even a Substack account or a Twitter feed to call his own. When Jeremy Corbyn was still a member of the Labour Party and, supposedly, even its leader. When Joe Swinson was going to be Prime Minister. When Change UK was still a thing. An awful lot has happened over the past couple of years, of course, but time brings with it distance and perspective and the chance for raw wounds to start to heal. Academics have had time to crunch the data properly now and figure out what actually happened. Insiders on both winning and losing campaigns at last feel ready to talk. So two years feels to me like sufficient time for us all to take a step back and look again at the 2019 general election surely destined to go down in history as one of the most consequential of modern times. It transformed the electoral map of this country, reset Britain's entire relationship with the rest of the world, and secured Boris Johnson's position as the most powerful Prime Minister since Tony Blair. It ended the Corbyn project to make Labour a truly radical left-wing force. It entrenched the Scottish nationalist position north of the border, and it shattered the hopes of those who believed a new party could find a centrist third way. So today we'll be hearing not from the front men and women, the Bojos and the Jezzas, the Nigels and the Joes, but from the real insiders, some of the most senior figures from in and around the main campaigns. We'll hear what went right.
2: Michael wrote down on a piece of paper, get Brexit done, and said see
3: what they think about that. And it was a bit of a lightbulb moment.
0: And what went wrong?
3: We had no messaging strategy, no real electoral strategy because of this divide about do we target Leavers, do
0: we target Remainers. We'll hear how a powerful new force emerged in British politics, albeit briefly, to push the Tories into line.
4: You can apply power without possessing power. You can have influence without having bums on seats.
0: And we'll hear how even as the Brexit party burned brightly for a moment, other smaller parties were somewhat less successful in their aims.
5: Leave and remain voters didn't see it as a credible thing. You know, that put us in la-la land.
0: From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard. And this week, in a special edition of Westminster Insider, we're asking what the hell happened in the 2019 election and how it changed our politics and our country, for good. It's October 2018, and Nigel Farage has gone to the pub. The watering hole in question is, unsurprisingly, the Marquess of Granby on Romney Street, SW1, one of Farage's two or three, or four or five, favoured Westminster pubs. Farage is there to meet Gawain Tola, his long-serving, expertly tailored and magnificently eccentric director of comms. And they're there to talk about Brexit.
4: We were going to have to do something. They had not taken their instruction from the people of this country.
0: Tola, of course, is referring to Theresa May's government and the ongoing negotiations with the European Union.
4: There was this constant delay, constant pushback and so on and so forth that... We came to the conclusion that the European elections, we were still going to be in the European Union at that point, and the European elections, we should fight. But we could not fight through what was now a tarnished brand of UKIP. Even to us it was tarnished. I know it was tarnished to many people beforehand, but even to us it was tarnished. So we had to create something new, something that was very focused on the question of honouring that
0: vote. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something kind of blue... The Brexit party was officially born at the start of 2019, with Farage taking over as leader a few weeks later. The Tories were absolutely petrified.
4: We'd learnt over the years that you don't have to get your backside on a leather green bench to make those who have their backsides on those benches feel a little bit uncomfortable. And we have an existential power. It's what I've always thought of as the judo method, you're not strong, but you use their strength against them. And if you're getting up to 15%, 20% in some polls, that's not going to get you any seats because you need 35. But it pretty well tells what, a third of current sitting members of both sides that they cannot guarantee that they will win themselves. So that existential fear for their own future knighthoods and directorships uh, does force action. Did you
0: have any doubts? I mean, setting up a new party to win some elections in a few months' time, no-one's ever really done anything like that before.
4: You touched the water of the country, it was clear that we could do something. Now We didn't know what, how, how successful we were going to be, but we're conviction politicians. We could not sit there and let what was going on continue so we had to force the issue we didn't trust even the good guys as we perceived them in the Tory party and a few in the Labour party we didn't trust them to be able to hold their own parties to account the executive to account so the only thing you could do is strap on the breastplate polish up the greaves and go for it
0: as has tended to be the case over the years Farage's initially bonkers sounding plan worked a treat from a standing start His fledgling Brexit party surged to victory in the European elections in May 2019, winning more seats than any of the established parties. British politics had seen nothing like it for a generation.
5: A new party, but a familiar face... Nigel Farage, jubilant as his Brexit party bagged 29 seats in the European elections.
6: We want to leave. Let's be clear, we don't want to be part of it. We don't want Mr Juncker... 2019, from a polling point of view, had been an extraordinarily chaotic year, possibly the most volatile year in opinion polling that we've seen since the launch of the SDP in the early 1980s.
0: This is Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester and one of the lead authors of a major new academic study of the 2019 election.
6: We'd seen both the Conservatives and the Labour Party experience a kind of nosedive in the spring. The Conservatives losing roughly half of their support at one point to the Brexit party that was launched early in the spring of 2019. The Labour Party losing substantial chunks of its support to the Liberal Democrats and the Greens in the same period. I think it was three factors that drove this sort of polling nosedive for both of the main parties. The first was the kind of crescendo of the Brexit crisis. We had the first article 50 deadline missed we had the three failed withdrawal agreement votes that led to a really sort of escalating polarization and frustration and therefore a willingness to consider parties at the poles of the Brexit divide. The second thing is we have new parties launching in this period. We have the Brexit Party launching in spring 2019 which immediately took a big chunk of the leave vote. We had Change UK launching which proved to be a bit of a flop in and of its own terms but ended up being a vehicle for a number of Labour MPs to end up in the Liberal Democrats and probably held to accelerate the rise in the support of the Liberal Democrats in this period when they start to become the party of second referendum, uncompromising Remain, attracting frustrated Remain voters from the Remain flank of the Labour Party. And then the third factor we have in this period was a really weird European Parliament election an election that wasn't supposed to happen to elect a bunch of people who would almost immediately lose their jobs to an institution that we were attempting to leave it was an utterly surreal election neither of the main parties really had any kind of campaign or message to carry into that election and it essentially became a massive free hit for both the most anti-EU and the most pro-EU parties
0: so Britain was polarized like never before And it was the parties with the more extreme positions on Brexit, so the Brexit Party and the Lib Dems, who were suddenly hoovering up support. Within a matter of weeks, spooked Conservative MPs had ousted Theresa May and the party installed Boris Johnson as its leader. Suddenly, the message on Brexit from Number 10 could hardly have been more different
1: that you will not go back to Brussels
3: and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes. And... Sorry. I can. And would you I'd rather... rather...
1: Be, I'd rather be dead in a ditch.
0: The months that followed would be among the most politically turbulent this country has known since the war. war, war, the since the war. Things to came to a head in September when MPs returned from the their summer break. Or at least, they houses. should have done.
2: And to also declare the prorogation of Parliament,
3: <laughs> desire the presence of this Honourable
0: House.
6: Really? No. 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 No.
5: He does not want to have to answer questions about his disastrous Brexit policy and in doing so he was prepared to mislead the Queen. Did you lie to the Queen when you advised her to suspend Parliament?
6: Absolutely not. It is a constitutional outrage.
4: Good evening from Westminster where the highest court in the United Kingdom has delivered a devastating ruling for Boris Johnson.
5: The decision to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament was unlawful.
6: And that was just the start. It was an extraordinary scenario. Professor Rob Ford. I mean, you'll remember it well, Jack. Like uh, The situation on the ground was changing almost day by day, sometimes hour by hour. When we got into September of 2019, we were once again coming up against another Article 50 deadline. Initially, it looked like Johnson wouldn't get a new withdrawal agreement. Then, all of a sudden, he did have a new withdrawal agreement after the uh, the summit with Leo Varadkar. He then took that withdrawal agreement back to Parliament, and then we didn't know if it was going to pass. And then. Unexpectedly, he achieved a majority at second reading for the withdrawal agreement, at which point it looked like there wouldn't need to be an election because he would be able to, quote-unquote, get Brexit done without having to go back to the people. But then it got into what was a very wearily familiar experience in that parliament. It got into the weeds of parliamentary procedure, at which point he pulled the Brexit bill and tried to push for a general election. Now, at the time... The primary lever to pull was the mechanism laid out in the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, which meant Johnson couldn't get an election without Labour agreeing to an election too. And at this point, Labour said they would not accept an election, and their argument for it was, no deal has to be off the table.
0: Johnson, as you'll no doubt recall, looked in quite a fix. He couldn't get either his deal or no deal through Parliament despite daily battles with MPs that at one point caused him to remove the whip from 21 of his own backbenchers. He'd just been publicly humiliated by the highest court in the land for trying to suspend the parliamentary process, and there was still no way he could call an election without opposition party support. To those of us watching open-mouthed in Westminster, it looked like a political catastrophe. But in Tory HQ a young and softly-spoken Australian strategist was watching things unfold with zen-like calm.
2: We were focused on the long-term strategic priorities, whereas I'd suggest that our opponents, and particularly the media, were obsessed with short-term tactics.
0: This is Isaac Levido, the 30-something election consultant drafted into Tory HQ in the summer of 2019. His brief? To get the Conservative Party election-ready. If and when the moment came.
2: Yes, what was happening in Parliament, ongoing sort of defeats on votes, difficult decisions the Prime Minister had to take about removing the whip from a lot of MPs, um, you know, deciding to prorogue Parliament in an effort to try and get a Queen's speech passed, and then, you know, the Supreme Court overturning that. Yes, they were, you know, proper defeats and very frustrating at the time. But what our opponents and what I believe, you know, very much the media were not seeing that those tactical defeats were only serving to strengthen our strategic hand for when and if, and obviously it did, the time came for an election that we could credibly stand up and say we have done everything that we possibly could to try and resolve this situation without having to put the public through the um, slightly frustrating experience of having to have an election.
0: And so, even though we in the media are all like, oh my goodness, the Prime Minister's, you know, been slapped down by the Supreme Court, no one can ever survive this. In CCHQ, you're thinking, yeah, it's not good, but it shows people that here's a guy who's trying everything he possibly can. To yeah, do this. and
2: you know he was demonstrating real leadership on the biggest issue of the day that people wanted to see resolved. They saw a big change when he came in, that he was going to do everything he could, regardless of how disruptive it was at times, to sort this issue out. And the public, who had been sort of looking for firm leadership on this for some time, were refreshed by it. Certainly they didn't see any firm leadership on that issue from our opponents in Parliament as well.
0: Indeed, they did not. Over in Labour HQ... The mood was far from jubilant as summer turned to autumn, despite Boris Johnson's travails.
3: They were certainly making a mess of it, but I think the frustration in the country was quite evident that people just wanted this done and out the way.
0: This is Andrew Fisher, Jeremy Corbyn's Executive Director of Policy during the 2019 election, and one of his closest and longest serving aides.
3: And I don't think that delay either Theresa May sort of dragging her feet and bungling the negotiations not getting her own side on side I think that whole period you know for two years had just frustrated people and I think in a sense we didn't have a clean and easy policy unfortunately on Brexit whereas you know Boris Johnson had a slogan and is still negotiating Brexit now really I mean they're talking about you know having to renegotiate the Northern Ireland protocol and so on again but he did have that kind of cleanness of saying, I'll get Brexit done. Whereas our policy was, well, we renegotiate a deal, then put it to you in a referendum and and carry this on for a few more months at least. And I think the cleanness of Johnson's offer was what made the difference ultimately.
0: And getting to that policy position on Brexit for Labour had obviously, well, from the the outside, looked like a pretty tortuous process. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um I mean I think the problem is is that after the 2017 election there was a general view within the party across kind of factions if you like that Brexit wasn't something we should focus on it wasn't an electoral sort of plus point for us that the domestic agenda was far more beneficial for labor. Then of course because the 2017 election changed the maths within parliament I think the arch remain side, the kind of revoke almost side, became more confident that that was a viable option because the parliamentary arithmetic had shifted a bit and the Tories didn't have a majority. But I think the the kind of miscalculation of tactics across the piece really cost us because I think it it made Parliament kind of get stuck in this rut of opposing sides of kind of a harder and harder Brexit on the Tory side as they got more frustrated and a more kind of Remain overturned the result, both from a a section of the Labour benches, but also the Lib Dems and the SNP and so on, who were more ardently Remain parties and could afford to be because their electoral geography was much different from Labour's. So I don't think it was viable. And I think what it led to was a breakdown of shadow cabinet discipline, You know, depending on who you interviewed as a journalist at the time you would get different emphasis at best, if not completely different uh, perspectives on what Labour's policy was in 2018 and 2019. And that breakdown in in discipline didn't help, I think, with the
0: electorate because they could see that Labour's position was confused. Do you wish in retrospect Labour had cut a deal with Theresa May back in early 2019 and helped her get Brexit done,
3: essentially? I mean, there's two answers to that. One is the practical one, which is There wasn't a deal to be done with Theresa May, even if she had moved into a kind of compromise customs union kind of position that we could have maybe just about got through. I don't think she would have survived long enough to implement it anyway. But the other point, the electoral point, I suppose as well, is that if Labour had done that, especially at that point in 2019, I think Labour would have lost votes off the other side of its coalition in greater numbers to the Lib Dems, to the Greens to abstention probably as well from a lot of disappointed people that would have thought we were the facilitators of Brexit and I think that would have given Joe Swinson, if she'd played her hand well, a much bigger opportunity.
0: But even without any Labour-Tory deal over Brexit, the Lib Dems that summer were cock hoop The same polarisation that had pushed the Brexit party to first place in the European elections had delivered the Romaniac Lib Dems a record number of MEPs. Internal polling suggested their pro-EU message was giving them real traction.
6: The Liberal Democrats invested in one of these kind of special super polls.
0: Professor Rob Ford.
6: And it suggested that they could take 50, 60, 70 plus seats. Now, figures in the party who had experience with polling were warning at the time that these numbers would come down because the party would inevitably get squeezed and that it shouldn't take them too literally or seriously. However, this poll was like a great big cold glass of water for the thirsty man in the desert because the Lib Dems had endured a very long period of sort of polling parietam. So they got very excited about it. There's no doubt about that. And it gave them a lot more confidence about the idea of a general election than they would otherwise have had. To be honest, we drunk the Kool-Aid. We
5: were euphoric.
0: This is Dorothy Thornhill, the Lib Dem peer who led the party's internal inquiry into the election. Her blistering report, published last year, described the campaign as a slow-motion car crash.
5: We just had the European elections, in which we'd done amazingly well too well I think we might say with hindsight because I believe that fundamental optimism and as I say the the whole buy-in to how well we had done in those elections led to some catastrophic decisions being made that were responsible for the degree of failure of the 2019 election.
0: A young new Lib Dem leader, Joe Swinson, was elected the same week that Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in July and in the party's eyes appeared to capture this sudden surge of optimism. At the autumn conference in Bournemouth, she presented herself to a party, and to the country, for the first time.
5: And today I am standing here as your candidate for Prime Minister. It was quite a conference, it has to be said. We've been the third party for so long. It's a bit like whether, you know, if you support Watford rather than Manchester City, you know, you always want to believe your team will come good at some point because it is about what you believe in and your whole value system. You know, you wanted to think that this could happen. We wanted to believe in our new, for us, charismatic leader. And, you know, we wanted to believe that we could go on to better things. And to be fair to Joe, you know, she was elected comfortably. People had confidence in her and she is a stunningly able and credible person. And I think, you know, the whole thing just fed into what ended up being the Joe for Prime Minister message, which in the end proved to be just a step too far for people. But yes, I again, I can understand it from the point of view of, you know, look who the two opponents were, you know, if you put Joe in the middle there, why should she not seem credible? But obviously, it was a huge step too far for the electorate. And Joe turned Out to be quite divisive and and a Marmite candidate in that sense. So yeah, it bombed.
0: At that same fateful party conference, Swinson's team decided to take their anti-Brexit policy to what must have seemed like the logical conclusion, and pledged to revoke Article 50 outright, without even a second referendum. The policy went down like a lead balloon.
5: Clearly, people were coming back from the doorstep. I was knocking on doors. I still knock on doors. It was absolutely apparent that we were attracting nobody with the revoke policy, except perhaps a tiny, narrow slice of really geeky people who were never going to win you a seat, you know, because both leave and remain voters just didn't believe it was the right thing, for different reasons, obviously. Didn't see it as a credible thing and that we weren't facing reality. You know, that put us in la-la land. You know, revoke and Joe for Prime Minister just made us seem beyond credibility.
0: For the Conservatives and for Labour, both trying to squeeze the once-surging Lib Dem vote, the revoke policy was a godsend.
3: It was a gift for us, really.
0: Labour's Andrew Fisher...
3: It made us the sole kind of holder of the second referendum position of the you, the people, decide, which is much more democratic than saying we're going to revoke it from on high. I think the Lib Dems misjudged the electorate that had voted Remain. Most of them weren't on marches saying, you know, let's get back in the EU, painting their faces blue with yellow stars. That wasn't most people. That was a kind of fringe activity. And they kind of took the position aimed at that fringe, whereas we took a position that was kind of like, look, we respect the referendum has happened, but look, here's the actual deal in front of us. You decide, do you want this deal or do you want to remain? And that was, I think, a, a fair position.
0: And here's Tory campaign chief, Isaac Levito.
2: The Lib Dems had already chosen to run a revoke campaign which significantly limited their appeal to you know a potential voting base that could have actually grown them into any sort of uh, serious threat. And the way that looked to voters was just head in sand not accepting the reality and also somewhat offensive as well that you know a they weren't accepting of a a democratic uh democratic exercise and they had no desire for any sort of resolution of the issue
0: so that was another champagne corks popping in cchq moment was it when they announced that policy
2: Look, yeah, (laughs) Uh, you know, there was certainly no champagne being drunk in TCHQ until the election night maybe, but look, it was something that um, removed another threat for us.
0: You knew instantly it was a big mistake. Yeah. With Parliament still deadlocked as the autumn progressed, the giddy Lib Dems joined forces with the Scottish National Party, who also believed, rightly in their case, that they'd benefit from a general election.
2: I vote for the SNP on
5: December the 12th is a vote to escape Brexit. It is a vote to put Scotland's future in Scotland's hands.
0: And finally, things started to move again in British politics.
6: Two things happened which changed the weather.
0: Professor Rob Ford.
6: The first was that the EU agreed an extension to Article 50 through to the end of January, which kind of pulled the rug out from Labour's argument against an election They started saying, oh, no general election until no deal is off the table. Then the EU says, well, no deal is off the table now. It left Labour with a much harder case to make. The second thing that happened was that the Liberal Democrats and the SNP emerged in the Sunday newspapers with a plan to go around the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act and basically table a bill that said, let's have a general election, the so-called one-line bill, that would have enabled an election to happen if just half the MPs voted for it. Now, my view is that by that stage, a general election couldn't have been avoided. Firstly, the sheer parliamentary arithmetic. The SNP were very likely going to vote for an early general election because they were worried about the Salmon trial coming up. They'd rather have an election before that. They were riding high in the polls. The Liberal Democrats were also likely to vote for a general election because the withdrawal agreement had passed its second reading. As far as they were concerned, the only way that you were going to stop Brexit at that point was to change the composition of the commons. So as far as they were concerned, it was general election or bust. And if you accept the premise that both of those parties or large parts of both of those parties were going to vote for a general election, a general election was going to happen. So if you're then Corbyn and the Leader of the Opposition's Office, your choices are a general election that you embrace or a general election that happens over your opposition. It's really obvious which is the better preference in that situation.
4: I've uh, just been to see Her Majesty the Queen earlier on and she agreed to dissolve Parliament for an election. I want you to know, of course, that I don't want an early election and no-one much wants to have an election in December, but...
0: And so the election was on. Coming up in part two, we'll take you through the short campaign, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, and how we all watched open-mouthed as the results came rolling in. Stay with us.
1: A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Our answer is one kilometre below the seabed. At Equinor, we're planning to use carbon capture and storage to help decarbonise the north of England. Carbon emissions from the Humber and Teesside regions will be safely stored one kilometre below the North Sea. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk.
0: As the election campaign proper got underway, in Tory party HQ, they had only one aim in sight – to get a very clear message out to voters again and again and again.
1: Let's get
4: Brexit done. Get Brexit done. Get Brexit done. What is it that we're going to do? Yeah. We're going to get Brexit done.
2: It basically came from a focus group, I
0: think. Tory campaign chief Isaac Levito.
2: I seem to recall it might have been in, we we're in Berry. I think. My now business partner, Michael Brooks, was observing those groups. People were, you know venting their ongoing frustration at what was happening they wanted this just sorted out sorted out that sort of language was getting bandied about but I think Michael wrote down on a piece of paper get Brexit done and handed it to the moderator and said see what they think about that uh, and it was a bit of a light bulb moment and that, that's that's, yeah, that's exactly what we want to hear what they wanted done
0: and then the other thing that you need right is someone with message discipline to go out and say this slogan millions of times a day and you had that too Quite. We were blessed with a very good candidate at the front of our campaign, an
2: exceptionally gifted communicator. As you said, has an ability to you know say the same thing in different ways at different times, which is always a you know a very big challenge for campaigns and for those
6: messengers that have to carry those messages on broadcast and, and in other media. It's one aspect of Johnson as a politician that I think is frequently underestimated.
0: Professor Rob Ford of Manchester University.
6: I mean, everyone associates Johnson with indiscipline. They don't see him as a, as a ruthlessly on-message politician. But paradoxically, when he goes into campaign mode, he is one of the most ruthlessly on-message politicians. And here's the critical thing. Because he has that sort of verbal panache... He can deliver the message day in, day out without ending up with the Maybot charge against him because May tried the same thing, of course. She tried to stay ruthless the on message but that ended up becoming the problem that she was robotic, stilted, she wasn't responding.
5: So that we have the strong and stable leadership strong and stable leadership to secure the strong and stable leadership the United Kingdom needs.
6: Johnson can pull off this remarkable trick of delivering an iron message discipline but without attracting the charge that he's robotic, that he's avoiding the questions and stuff like this. It's a very impressive trick to pull off and makes him very hard to run against when you're in opposition.
0: And this was very much an approach dreamed up in CCHQ. This is Linton Crosby politics, isn't it, basically? They say the same thing again and again and again.
6: Yes, yeah, and the discipline on camera was also reflected in the discipline in the back room. So it was Crosby, protégé Isaac Levito, who was in charge of the campaign. And much of the sort of general lines of the campaign were laid out very early. And another key lesson from 2017, in 2017, the Conservative Party had the problem that Labour had in 2019. Lots of internal argument, and it wasn't clear who was making the decisions day to day in the campaign. Levito's team said from day one, we have to be fully in charge of all the key decision making. We don't want lots of different cooks, bars, into the kitchen and again another thing that I think would surprise people because it cuts against popular perceptions of him Dominic Cummings not really involved day-to-day in the campaign at all he said he would step back he wouldn't involve himself in these decisions it was the Vito's campaign to run and he stuck to that everyone involved uh, agrees on that so although he has this image as a sort of agent of chaos in the 2019 campaign he absolutely wasn't it was an extremely disciplined operation
0: I asked Isaac Levido if the streamlined command structure in Tory HQ was indeed a key reason why the 2019 Conservative campaign was so effective.
2: Uh, look, yeah, I think that that was certainly a factor. We had more time to prepare, first and foremost. You know, it was not a huge amount of time, but there was a you know we had a few months. There was you know very clear and transparent lines of authority. I was in charge. Again, we had some time to get uh, others in to sort of you know additive to what was already there in the party, but it was a much you know smoother running process in 2019, and that wasn't just because of my leadership. There was, you know, there was there was a very good team.
0: Ironically, this shift between 2017 and 2019 to a more streamlined and highly effective command structure inside Tory HQ was mirrored precisely by a Labour party headed in the opposite direction. In the months and years since the 2017 election, Jeremy Corbyn's top team had slid further and further into chaos. The main problem is that there were more entrenched
3: divides both within the shadow cabinet and within the kind of core team around Jeremy over what our Brexit position should be. Now, I found that very frustrating because I thought, well, it's settled.
0: Labour's Andrew Fisher.
3: But... Yeah, we weren't as well organised. I think we never found a good kind of narrative for the campaign, whereas we did in 2017. In 2017, our slogan was for the many, not the few. And that fitted with our kind of strong anti-austerity policies. For the 2019 election, we had no messaging strategy, kind of no real electoral strategy because of this divide about do we target leavers? Do we target remainers? Do we have a kind of stepped approach which looks at kind of reconsolidating the remainer base first and then moves on? You know, none of that was settled and there was not enough structure anymore at that point for that to be settled and resolved in a kind of functional way.
0: Is that partly about structure? You know, speaking to the Conservative campaign, Boris Johnson eventually found one guy and said, you're in charge of the campaign. Everyone listen to this guy and do what he says. And that is what they did. And that didn't happen in Labour.
3: No, not at all. And when I I mean, I've read stuff since on, on that and the role that Isaac Levido played not on their policies or on their personnel, but I did look on quite enviously at that structure because that's what we needed. We needed somebody probably externally, and Labour's very bad at doing this, I think, historically, of getting someone in to run a campaign who knows how to run a campaign well. And I think having somebody who could just come in with that force of personality to just go, right, this is what's happening, and no, that's not, and you shut up or you step back, you know, quite bluntly, I think would have been very beneficial. It wouldn't have changed the result massively because I think ultimately the issue of Brexit at that point divided people and the Labour vote was too inefficiently spread, whereas the Tory Leave vote was very efficiently spread across the constituencies, especially once the Brexit party had pulled out of the Conservative races and concentrated solely on targeting our vote in the Leave seats. That helped the Conservatives target offensive seats and meant they could relax about the defensive seats.
4: The Brexit Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. But what we will do is concentrate our total effort into all of the seats that are held by the Labour Party, who have completely broken their manifest... That moment,
0: in in early November 2019, a month out from the general election when Nigel Farage withdrew all Brexit Party candidates facing a sitting Conservative MP, was viewed by every person I interviewed for this podcast as among the most decisive moments of the campaign. At a stroke, the very real prospect of the Brexiteer right being split and allowing Labour or Lib Dem opponents to come through the middle and pinch seats from the Tories was removed, in scores of seats across the land. The decision to step aside seems so obvious now, but Farage's chief aide, Gawain Tola, insists none of this was pre-planned.
4: We did select pretty universally across the country. There's a couple of gaps, not many. And we we were still, if you look at the polls, we were still upwards in the 15s, 20s, and again, there's this threat. There's this threat. It's not we're going to win seats ourselves. We just you lot can't be sure you're going to keep your own. And that threat we think, made quite a big difference on the way the Tories approach things. So we just continued doing what we were doing. Now, we, we were fighting across the board, but...
0: But you must have known that if you continued to fight across the board, there was a reasonable chance you would stop Conservatives winning seats that well, might actually cause your cause a problem. This
4: was always possible. It depended on how we were doing percentage-wise, how Labour were doing. In politics, you can't just look at your own. You've got to see other planks are moving upwards and down, and, and there are other other cogs. And you have to then think of what you're doing in relation not just to what you believe, but what you see is going on elsewhere. And we saw that the possibility of a Labour-dominated coalition with the SNP and some Lib Dems, because the Lib Dems were snapping at the Tories' feet in quite a few of the Tory Lib Dem marginals, we saw that as a real and present danger to Brexit.
0: What the Brexit Party wanted at this point was a firm commitment from Boris Johnson that there would be no backsliding, as they saw it, on the timing or the manner of Britain's departure from the EU.
4: Boris, at that point, has anybody ever, ever, in any walk of life, done well out of believing anything he said? I don't know. I I can't think of one. But at that point, that was the option we had. And then when, through channels... We were in discussion with Boris, on Boris's team. He made a commitment in a video to members that we'd ask him to make on the Sunday. And on the Monday, we made the decision to stand down against sitting Tory MPs.
0: And that commitment was about a Canada-style deal and not extending the deadline.
4: Yeah. We didn't think... We're realistic. We don't think we're going to get the world. We're just going to try and get the best we can get. Do not make the perfect the enemy of the good. We're not stupid. Now, we are well aware that we're not going to become government. So we are. We, there is that inherent weakness. in. I boast about the ability to have influence outside Westminster, but it's only, it only goes so far. And we were really worried with the growth. I mean, Joe Swinson was convinced she was going into government. Yes. Hmm. Okay. They were strange times. Dumbarton's finest. Um, but actually... It didn't look that bats for a short while, and so it was a very difficult decision. I was not part of it, but it was a very difficult decision made by Farage, and Tice, and a couple of others to basically say we're going to have to do this. It's not what we want to do; absolutely isn't what we want to do. But it's Hobson's choice. What can we do to ensure that there isn't backsliding on Brexit? There isn't a second referendum which would have been stitched up and highly contentious how that was going to be run, and so we had to bite the bullet. Now, lots of people were put out. They'd put time, effort, money into standing in Tory marginal seats and Tory seats, and we just said, you're off, without telling them beforehand. But we had to do it like that, otherwise it would have leaked. And the power of the decision, the announcement, would have been mitigated. And we believe, and I think others do, and I said, I don't know, That decision killed the Lib Dems as a serious electoral force in that election. Their morale just collapsed because they were not going to win seats against Tories.
0: Because the vote was no longer split in those seats? Yes, the
4: the, the Brexit vote was no longer split. There's nothing they could do. And their morale fell off a cliff. Labour realised that this was going to make life very difficult for them as well because the Remain vote was split all over the place in those Tory seats. Labour were not going to make gains. Which they needed to do.
0: Given his famous record, why did you believe the prime minister would deliver on the promise that you say he made to you?
4: Because we hoped. I don't think we necessarily believed, but we hoped. The other option was Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> what do you do? I and mean, not just Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Swinson, Nicola Sturgeon. Really, this is this is um, two to a. Uh, a seasoned, hardened Brexiteer like myself, that would really put me off my porridge. Um, it really would. And we think it would economically disrupt the country. It would have been an appalling, an appalling thing to do to the country, to let those three take the levers of control.
0: Downing Street, of course, has always denied any deal was done with the Brexit party. Here's Isaac Levido issuing what we'll generously call a non-denial denial.
2: I did not have any uh, conversations with anyone from the Brexit party during the campaign I was focused on. Focused on our campaign and our candidates and uh, getting our message across.
0: Whatever the truth, the mood inside the pro-Remain camps at Farage's bombshell announcement was every bit as glum as you'd imagine.
5: I remember hearing it as all us geeky folk listening to Radio 4 and you just suddenly think, well, that does it for us there and there and you can more or less list off.
0: Lib Dem peer Dorothy Thornhill.
5: I think we were on such a course that it was just difficult to move that juggernaut off that course, even though it seemed to be, you know, stuff was hitting us from all angles, telling us that this wasn't the right approach. But yeah, that definitely did for us, there's no doubt
0: about that. Labour's Andrew Fisher. The Brexit
3: party kind of almost going into coalition effectively with the Tories in terms of their strategy. I mean, that was at that point I thought, right, no, we've got no chance of kind of advancing on where we were in 2017. This is hold what we can, in my own mind. I'm not sure the resources moved to reflect that at that point, but they should have done.
0: Professor Rob Ford of Manchester University.
6: In terms of electorally consequential campaign moments, that's the one that stands out. The direct effect of... Brexit Party votes being siphoned off the Conservative column would have been huge, was huge, where Farage continued to stand. And secondly, the indirect effect. By saying, I'm standing down in Conservative seats, Farage was sending a strong signal to Leave voters that, in his view, the Conservative government was good enough for getting Brexit done. He never said it, of course. He was never very enthusiastic about it. But the signal was fairly clear, and you can see... Leave voters reacting to that signal in the polling over the rest of the campaign. The Brexit vote goes down very substantially, even the places uh, where they're continuing to stand, because the pollsters adjust for that. And it does seem that that's because a lot of Leave voters are saying, well, if it's good enough for Nigel, it's good enough for me.
0: Indeed, such was the Brexit Party's influence on this election that Professor Ford calculates that Farage's decision to at least keep fighting in Labour-held areas likely prevented a far bigger Tory landslide peeling away voters in so-called red-wall seats who might otherwise have backed Boris Johnson.
6: There are quite a lot of senior Labour figures who probably have Nigel Farage to thank for the fact that they're still in the Commons today because... The Brexit Party split the Leave vote in many northern Labour seats, Midlands Labour seats, in such a way that it enabled MPs like Ed Miliband and Yvette Cooper to survive, where in the absence of a Brexit Party candidate, probably a Conservative MP would have been elected.
0: Gawain Toller, for what it's worth has no regrets.
4: According to some studies, we stopped the Tories getting 100... Who needs a 130 seat majority with th- that lot? Can you imagine that lot with 130? Can you imagine the appalling rubbish they'd come up with? So, thank goodness we didn't let them have 130, because look what they do with an 80 seat majority. It sends shivers down my spine.
0: For Isaac Levido, the second key moment of the short campaign came two weeks later, in late November 2019 during a Leaders' Question Time show on BBC One, when Jeremy Corbyn said he would stay neutral in a second EU referendum. And I will adopt, as Prime Minister if I am at the time, a neutral stance so that I can credibly carry out results... When Corbyn said he was
2: neutral on Brexit, that was you know, good for us and bad for them, uh, because it sort of demonstrated that complete lack of leadership and lack of credibility on the biggest issue of the day, the fact that the alternative prime minister was not going to take a position on something was just something that was uh, said everything to voters about that lack of leadership. Like, I remember, you know, focus groups at the time and people were using words like, this is just pathetic. How can we take this guy seriously? And I think it's interesting to reflect back on it because if you think about Whatever your views of Jeremy Corbyn, he's arguably one of the most sort of principled politicians and certainly principled leaders that uh, a major party in the, in the UK has seen in some time taking, you know, principled stances, you know, very unpopular, yes, uh, very controversial, but very principled. And on the biggest issue, for some reason, he couldn't take a principal position. And it sort of, you know, makes you wonder what was going on in the Labor family or the shadow cabinet at the time that he was unable to take a principal
0: position on that issue. And did that take you by surprise when he said that?
2: Uh, Yeah. Labor forming a credible Brexit position was always going to be a a big, big threat for us or getting their act together. And frankly, I was expecting him to say something else, you know, to to, to take one side or the other, which would have been a problem for us. And so the fact that he took neither was, you know, I, I couldn't believe it.
0: Labour's Andrew Fisher.
3: Uh, I think it was the only viable position for him to take. I mean, the the conference policy was that Labour would renegotiate a deal and then put it to the people in a referendum. I think what Jeremy was trying to do was emulate a kind of Harold Wilson in 75 position, which is, I'll stay fairly neutral, I'll allow my cabinet, shadow cabinet, or cabinet as it would have been if we'd been implementing that policy, to campaign on either side, but I will implement whatever the result is, you, the people, decide. And I think if you say there should be a referendum. It's because there is political deadlock and politicians can't decide. And I think a prime minister saying, well, look, my role is to implement whatever you decide is probably the right policy. But does it sell well electorally? (laughs) I mean, evidently not. (laughs) But, you know, I think any other position is just as absurd, really, on that.
0: Did you try to make it not a Brexit election? Did you try frantically to talk about everything else? But
3: Yeah. I mean, I think at the time I knew that was probably a forlorn hope but we definitely tried to and I think in Rob Ford's book on the 2019 election it does show that people cared more about the NHS at the end of the campaign than they did at the beginning and I think that's largely due to our focus on it but ultimately although that's true it was still very much a Brexit election for most people and that didn't cut through enough um you know I think we should remember as well we had internal MRP polling in September that showed us I think being on about 140 seats we got up from that to 200 and something by yeah. the election. So we did close that gap a little bit. And that was mainly because we did squeeze the Lib Dem vote down, but we didn't mobilise our own vote in the same way that we had in 2017. And so, you know, we we suffered a very bad result, but it could have been worse, I think. And trying to shift the issue at, th- at that point, trying to shift the issue off of Brexit, I think was the only viable strategy because you couldn't have got... Jeremy talking with the same passion about Brexit that you had, Boris Johnson saying, get Brexit done, oven ready deal, all of that sort of stuff, because he just didn't, it wasn't so core to his being. Yeah, Jeremy cares deeply about housing, about poverty, about the National Health Service. You can get him to speak authentically and genuinely on those things. Brexit was a process issue. It's not something that had ever kind of enlivened him in the same way. And I think it was very difficult, I think, for Labour to sell a a kind of compromise position with the same enthusiasm that a lever can sell a leave proposition.
0: More broadly, did you feel Jeremy Corbyn's performance in the campaign lived up to the standard he set in 2017?
3: No. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is he wasn't able to speak about the issues that kind of enlivened him as I said before as much as he was in 2017 and two I think he personally was much more beaten down by 2019 I think the personal attacks on him in the media you know on his family on you know you know labeling him a racist and stuff like that which uh, I know he found very very difficult to contend with I think it had an impact on him, and I think it showed in the interviews he did. If you look at the interviews he did with Andrew Neil and with Jeremy Paxman in twenty seventeen, he's much more relaxed, much more confident. And I think in twenty nineteen, he looked like somebody who was, you know, had his back to the wall and was fighting for his survival, and wasn't wasn't as relaxed. He wasn't as as happy. I think it had taken its toll on him. I think it had really ground him down, and it, that kind of slightly, I guess, irascible kind of character that he occasionally let slip in the leadership election in his early days when it was a bit all a bit new to him kind of just became his default almost in the 2019 election. Um, but it's tough. Look I'm not saying that to attack him. I'm saying it because I think it's important to understand how wearing it is especially being a Labour leader because you are under far more scrutiny even though you're the opposition not not the Prime Minister.
0: The policy is that within three months we'll negotiate a leave option with the EU, right. which does take us out of membership. And I've said that, some, Mr Corbyn. My s- question is why six are you remaining neutral on the greatest issue of our time? And within six months, we'll put that to a referendum. And I said people. that too. Was why? the Andrew Neil interview in 2019 a low point of the campaign, do you think, for Labour?
3: Yeah, I think undoubtedly it didn't do us any good. And I think the fact that Boris Johnson subsequently ducked his interview on it and didn't have the same sort of tough interview. I mean, Joe Swinson didn't come off well from her interview with Andrew Neil either. They're tough interviews, and we only agreed to it because all the party leaders had agreed to it. I don't think anyone would have voluntarily gone, yes, that's how I want to spend my you know Tuesday evening or whatever it was for an hour, because he's a, you know, he's a very hardball interviewer who talks about what he wants to talk about and what he thinks will most damage you rather than what's of interest to the country. It's not public service programming in some sort of
0: Dimbleby-ish BBC way, is
3: it? It's it's much more attack-minded. And I think that definitely
0: didn't help. We in the media subsequently got rather taken with the idea that the PM's decision to chicken out of his own Andrew Neil interview could prove damaging to the Prime Minister, especially after Neil called him out on live TV. It
4: is not too late. We have an interview prepared, oven ready, as Mr Johnson likes to say. The theme running through our questions is trust, and why, so many times in his career, in politics and journalism, critics and sometimes even those close to him have deemed him to be untrustworthy. Here's is no Isaac Levita. Court Jeremy
2: Corbyn had a very difficult uh, interview with Andrew Neil. Obviously, I mean, yes, the Westminster media bubble got very obsessed with. Uh, uh, the fact that the Prime Minister did not have an interview with, with Andrew Neil. But look, I think what the public care about is the Prime Minister being sort of challenged on the issues that matter to them day in and day out. And that's what he did in the campaign. And I think he did hundreds of interviews with local media around the country. And I think The fact that the Westminster bubble got so obsessed with one particular interview, with one particular interviewer, is a demonstration of the sort of lack of uh, connection with the broader country and the broader public.
0: The only moment when, for me, the Tories really did look briefly rattled came in the final days of the campaign, when a bleak photograph emerged in the press of a young boy lying on the floor of an overcrowded hospital. The picture was shown to Boris Johnson by a Sky News reporter and Johnson reacted poorly, waving away the question and casually putting the reporter's phone into his pocket.
6: So uh, I have every sympathy with... You refuse to look look at the photo. You've taken my phone put it in your pocket, Prime Minister. That was a weak spot for the Conservatives. Health. Health, the salience of health had been rising in the campaign.
0: Professor Rob Ford.
6: It was one of Labour's successes in that regard. And here we were in the final days, and this was a story that graphically illustrated what the public was worried about with the NHS. And you had a Conservative Prime Minister whose actions to Joe Pike, putting his phone in his pocket and stuff, looked callous. But again, it petered out seemingly without impact. Perhaps it had just come too late in the campaign for it to change the weather at that point. But I remember when that story broke, thinking this could be, you know, what the Americans call the October surprise, the, the, the late-breaking story that maybe shifts some uncertain voters. But again, it just didn't seem to happen. And I think the common element was the Conservatives didn't panic, number one, and they came out aggressively, very aggressively, to neutralise those stories before they really got going.
0: Tory campaign chief, Isaac Levito.
2: You know, in the last sort of 48 hours of a campaign, it all gets very intense. You know, the media in particular is sort of scrambling to try and make something into a game-changing moment that could turn the tide and change everything. So it happened in that context. And, and you need to respond. And, you know, the substance of what was being shown to the Prime Minister was something concerning. People want to don't want to see uh, children lying on the floor of hospitals. However, we had a degree of confidence that, you know, we were in a strong position and most people people had made up their mind on how they were going to vote by that point and you know if you recall the following day we did not change our plans and we were you know back on message and it was particularly novel imagery that we used to communicate the message that day when the prime minister drove a a jcp digger through a get brexit done
1: wall
0: those sorts of stunts are they just you guys just having fun or do they actually are they an effective way of winning votes, seeing getting the promises to do stuff like that?
2: They're an effective way of forcing you guys in the media to cover our message. Elections are big communications and marketing exercises at the end of the day. And Yes, they're not like other sort of earned media exercises where there's other new like the media just has to cover elections, but they don't necessarily need to cover your message, they can cover your opponent's message. And add to that in this particular instance, we had a very simple, arguably boring message, and we did a lot of work researching it to know it was right, but... Once we had it, we needed to find novel, new ways of executing it all the time. So that instance with The Digger, the Love Actually spoof we did, what that actually was at its core was basically our, it was our narrative. And we executed it in a way where we just forced people to watch and read it for three minutes right at the end of the apex of the campaign.
0: So even when people are taking the mic or saying, oh, this is corny or ripoff or whatever, you don't care because everybody's talking it and watching about it and consuming your message. Precisely. And so election day dawned. December the 12th, 2019 was a cold, dark, and drizzly day, and nothing more could happen that was going to change the outcome. Look, in
2: my position, you're never, you know, it's always a very nervous uh, time because there's always things that can go wrong, but also it's the moment when all ability to do anything change anything is gone you can't control anything anymore uh it's now in the hands of voters and you just have to wait but look we had a pretty firm degree of confidence that we'd done enough to win we went and saw the prime minister in the morning uh, and we were able to tell him that you know we were confident that we were going to secure a swing big enough to give him a
3: strong working majority
0: Labour's Andrew Fisher
3: on that day I hadn't estimated the scale of defeat we would suffer um but you know, I don't think anyone was thinking we would advance. I think there are people who are optimistically thinking, let's see if we can hold where we were at 2017. That would be a great result, given the circumstances. And that given what we know now, that would have been a great result. But, you know, it wasn't to be.
5: Certainly from my own personal um, experience, you know, if you're knocking on doors and talking to people, you absolutely know the temperature.
0: Lib Dampier, Dorothy Thornhill.
5: And I think we did. I think there may still have been individuals who were in denial about things and believed that, you know, the rabbit could be pulled from the hat. But I think most people went into election day with, let's just say, less of a spring in their step than they had done six weeks earlier when the campaign started.
0: Finally, after what is always the longest and most drawn-out day in the political calendar, the exit poll dropped at 10pm.
2: The Conservatives on 368 seats and Labour way down on 191. Now, it on was a Tory
0: s- landslide.
2: Look, very, very relieved, obviously. <laughs> very relieved, very heartening that all the hard work and that, you know, we would basically got it right and, you know, very, very proud of the team also who'd worked, you know, very, very hard and were able to sort of, you know, celebrate.
0: Labour's Andrew Fisher. Uh, Grim. Uh, there was a, a
3: long pause. I was with Jeremy and some other senior staff and it felt like five minutes of silence. It probably wasn't. It was probably like 30 or 40 seconds, but it was a long time when I mean, we all just saw that result. And yeah, we were devastated. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, it's it whichever sort of faction of the Labour Party you're in, whether you're on the left or the right, you want Labour to win. You know, I mean, I've canvassed for Labour since I joined in 1996. It's not, you know a Labour government's better than a Conservative one and we just, you know we massively let people down with that result there's no doubt about that and it's you know that's a moment that will definitely stay with me just as the 2017 one will um you know for very different reasons but um i mean there was a yeah i think just a what do you say you know uh it's very very difficult
0: the brexit party's Gawain toler
4: yeah, yeah.
3: I guess, I'd be again,
4: given the choice, I, I wasn't... I, I, Popping I, the, the corks? The, the, the roader stayed in the fridge, but I was satisfied. I think it's satisfied that we'd done what we set out to do, which is everything in our power to ensure that the referendum result was
0: honoured. Lib Dampier, Dorothy Thornhill. If you... I'm getting
5: a bit emotional now. If you spent your whole life in politics
0: and you believe
5: that what you're doing is right and good for the country and the rest of it, and you see that smashed. I felt devastated. So goodness knows what Joe and Duncan and her family felt and all the other people who were in those seats absolutely working themselves to being ill because you don't get anywhere as a Liberal Democrat on just a casual campaign, just doing what you need to do. You know, you have to give everything. But most of all, because you believe that what you're doing is right. You know, we want a thriving democracy. We want liberal values to be there at the forefront. So to actually feel that we're being marginalised to the extent that we are now is hard to take.
0: Could the election of 2019 gone a different way? Or was Boris Johnson then at the height of his popularity essentially an unstoppable force?
6: Well, I mean, party leaders always do matter,
0: Professor Rob Ford has spent the past 18 months crunching the polling and electoral data on all of this stuff.
6: But the way that they matter is often very deeply intertwined with the context in which they're operating, and that was very, very true this time. So, for example, there is... A kind of widespread belief that Johnson is an unusually popular conservative. He isn't. He was less popular on every day of the 2019 campaign than Theresa May was on every equivalent day of the 2017 campaign. And Johnson ended the 2019 campaign less popular with voters than Corbyn ended the 2017 campaign. So he wasn't some sort of massively popular politician. That wasn't his impact. His impact came through the way in which he kind of symbolised and epitomised the idea of getting Brexit done at all costs. And you can see that when you look in particular at the voters who switched directly from Labour to the Conservatives. Views of Johnson are a really powerful predictor of that switching. But they're also overwhelmingly Leave voters. So these are voters who say... Normally I'd be Labour, I really want Brexit to happen, this guy will get Brexit done, so I'm going to vote for him. So that's how the Johnson effect operates, I think. It's not because he's generally popular, but he's popular where it counts in this election.
0: So according to Rob Ford, it wasn't Boris Johnson who was so unusually popular in 2019, but the get Brexit done message dreamed up in the focus groups of Isaac Levido and Michael Brooks. So what if Johnson had been facing a very different type of Labour Party, with a very different approach on Brexit?
6: One thing that I think contemplating this election for the best part of a year and a half has done is made me a lot more sympathetic to how difficult Labour's position was. I mean, Corbyn was a problematic leader in a number of respects, but a number of the conditions that he faced in 2019 would have been difficult for any leader of any calibre to manoeuvre themselves out of. Labour were really trapped by geography. So the way Leave and Remain votes are distributed in this country, Remain votes pile up in a small number of seats. Leave votes spread out. You can't win a majority with just the Remain seats. Labour knew that. Any Labour leader would have known that. So it was not possible to go full-fat Remain because doing so meant abandoning winning a majority before a single vote was cast. But on the other hand, a very vocal section of the Labour electorate and the Labour activist base were not willing to accept anything less than full-fat remain, full-fat second referendum by the time we got to the general election.
0: I asked Andrew Fisher if he could imagine a different Labour approach to Brexit, which might have held the two sides of its voting coalition together.
3: I think if we, it depends where you start, if you start in 2019, no, if you go back to the 2017 election, so if you like the 9th of June, the day after, then yes, I think if we'd come out after that and said we want a soft Brexit, stay in the customs union, but if we'd really sold it and said, look, this is a compromise, the country's split on this, this is what I think the way forward is, could that have held? I don't know. It depends if Theresa May had got another deal through, if she'd moved closer to that deal, if Tories had thought that's a reasonable compromise, we get Brexit, it's a soft Brexit. I don't know. But it seems to me the only way Labour could have had a different policy was if we had led on it and been much more forthright on it much earlier on. And
0: unfortunately, we weren't. By late 2019, then, perhaps the only thing that might have changed the course of the election would have been Nigel Farage ploughing on with candidates in every seat. So splitting the pro-Brexit vote right across the UK.
6: I know that people in the Brexit party were very, very deeply divided about whether or not to make that move. And I think it could have been a very different and much more volatile election campaign. Firstly, because the Brexit party vote wouldn't have gone down as quickly. I mean, people think that the campaign was static. It wasn't. Labour and the Conservatives rose in lockstep all the way through the campaign. The Conservatives were taking votes from the Brexit party. Labour were taking votes from the Lib Dems. In the absence of Farrell standing down, neither of those things might have happened. The Brexit party would have been still in the running, which would have made it harder for the Conservatives to consolidate that Leave vote. So it could have become a much more volatile and unpredictable campaign. But the only thing we can say for certain is the biggest losers in that scenario would have been the Conservatives.
0: So it's not impossible that Boris Johnson would have come away without his majority.
6: He could have ended up with a wafer-thin majority and possibly a significant contingent of Conservative MPs who've had a near brush with death against the Liberal Democrats and are then therefore much less willing to vote for a kind of diamond-hard Brexit in the form of his withdrawal agreement. So imagine he had a majority of 15. Quite possibly it would have been hard to hold on to 15 of the most remaining MPs. So we could have had Brexit deadlock round three, right as the coronavirus kicked off as well.
0: Brexit deadlock and coronavirus happening in tandem. A parallel world for us all to contemplate as we lie awake staring into the abyss. The truth is that for all the main parties, the stunning events of 2019 were a decade or more in the making. At times it felt like a swirling mix of historic, economic and demographic forces were pushing things way beyond the control of any single political party or campaign team. But to the victor, the spoils, an 80-seat majority for Boris Johnson and the chance to guide Britain through, well, so far, a turbulent exit from Europe a series of minor scandals and a deadly global pandemic. And to the losers, obscurity. The Lib Dems, of course, remain a tiny rump of a party, while Jeremy Corbyn and his socialist project have been consigned to the history books, with Corbyn himself suspended even from being a Labour Party member. Perhaps the real winners, then, were the SNP, sweeping almost every seat in Scotland as they rode an anti-Brexit and anti-Boris wave of support and, of course, Nigel Farage, who finished the decade as he started it, a failed parliamentary candidate with zero MPs, but with his lifelong ambition achieved. A political party he dreamed up in a pub a few months earlier had changed the Conservatives, changed the course of Brexit, and so changed the course of British history, before essentially disappearing again at the end of the year, once its work was done. So to finish the podcast... It seemed right to ask Gawain Towler how he looks back now on the seminal year of
4: 2019. Bats. Utterly bats. I mean, extraordinary. A couple of weeks ago, the former MEPs, the Brexit Party MEPs, had a dinner and, I talking to, and it was just this, this is what a crazy, what an absolutely crazy year that was. Unheard of in British politics. So it, it, it is Icarus like, it is this extraordinary flash in the pan. It's just extraordinary what happened there. And it does show that conviction, belief, individual sort of desire to, to achieve things can be done, even without vast sums of money, even without vast networks and machines. If you really believe something is right, you can achieve stuff. We're all a bit immured to the machine policies, the two-party systems, the this, that and the other. Nothing changes. Well, yeah, it does. It can change. It really can, and we've shown it over the last decade.
0: Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really time sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy? My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Cristina Gonzalez. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.